Welcome to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast with your hosts, Brian DeHart. Hey, Mac and Cheese fans, welcome back. We just crossed another bridge. We're in 11 countries, and we have you to thank. Thank you so much. Are you sure? Absolutely. Our host, Anchor FM, keeps us informed of all our accomplishments. A bird in hand is worth two in the bush. Well said, Bruno. You sure are wise. Thank you. Do you know what'll make your day special? Go ahead. Make my day. Our old friend, William Knauer, is on today's podcast. Time out. Bill is author, lecturer, and coach. Host of the Author to Author podcast, editor-in-chief of Author Magazine. He conducts workshops on fearless writing, and to add to his renaissance man talents, <laughs> oh. this podcast's musical interludes will be classically based pieces written by Bill, and if you can believe this, when you hear it back, he did it with GarageBand. Holy crap. Good job. All right, time's wasted. I'm curious, what makes you so curious? The power of belief, you believe anything. You literally Absolutely. can believe anything. Right. And, it, you know, and, and that's why I always feel that stories matter, words matter, because put out what you want in the world, not because people will believe anything. <laughs> that's anything. Awesome. You know, I've been, I've been reading your book. It's oh, so good. well written. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks. It's, so applicable to so many things, especially in the creative realm. It's just awesome. That's what it's all about, baby. You ready to do this thing? Yeah, man. Brian at Mac and Cheese Music Podcast here with my good friend, Bill Knauer. I've known Bill for about 25 years, and I've watched him go from a... Has it been that long? Oh, Jesus. And yeah, easily. <laughs> the 91, right? Yeah. 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 30, so try 30. 30, 30 years. Well, you know, time flies when you're having fun. That, actually, I've uh, seen Bill progress from a fellow co-worker into a, a, a nationally famous author. Yeah. Uh, absolutely. And uh, we're, we're going to talk about his experience and uh, the, the trials and tribulations that have brought him to the, the level of success that he's at. Well, thanks for having me on, Brian. Pleasure having you. I hope you enjoy being had. <laughs> Always. Always. Why don't we just start from the beginning? Just tell us about Bill. Uh, well, so much to say. Uh, I'm, uh, what do you want to know specifically, Brian? What do you want to know about Bill? Well, you know what? I, I know that you're you're a dedicated family man. You've been married for uh, long, uh, as long 29 as years. I yeah. married, we got married in 92. Yeah. Okay. Not yeah. Long. Okay, I seem to vaguely remember that that you were anticipating that. That's that's yep. right. When I first met you, you were still single. I, I yes, I in fact, I live in Seattle with Brian, but I moved here chasing a girl, and uh, that I had met in Providence when I was seventeen. Saw her in a play, was smitten by her. She went to a different high school than I did, and uh, I arranged a semi-blind date with her because she we didn't know each other but i knew i wanted to meet her and i did and i quite was quite taken by her and this would have been in the winter of like 1982 i think wow. my senior year in high school 82 83 and she said um 
And she, like on our third date or something, she said, well, I'm moving to Seattle once we graduate. And I was just devastated. So the whole time I'm seeing her, I know this clock is ticking down. It's going to end. And, you know, I'm 17. You don't, most 17 year olds don't, when they fall in love, you know, what? It's you're 17. You don't know. But it turns out I did know. I actually did know, <laughs> you know. And so that was quite a profound experience for me, her leaving. And then seven years later, kind of searching her out and deciding to move up to be with her because it was it 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 that uh, that experience affected me for a long time i would dream about her a lot wake up still feeling like she had died in a way even though i knew she hadn't and um and that drew me up to seattle after i'd gone to la with the vague notion of being a screenwriter which did not pan out i didn't really want to write screenplays but it seemed like a thing to do at the time. I mean, that's worthy of talking about. It was a goal that you had. You moved now, to LA and- Well, you- what happened was my brother and I were doing a show in Providence called the American Basement Review. It was a two-man sketch comedy show. It was two-man, we had a piano player. And we did it around a few theaters. It started doing pretty well. We got some reviews. It was, it was doing well. And then we just ran out of steam on it. Um, I don't quite know why. It just, it just died. And we were like, well, what are we going to do next? You know, and my friend Chris, who I'd gone to high school with, had moved from New York to try to be an actor. And then he got to L.A. to be an actor. And he was back in province. He said, you guys should come out. And we were like, OK, we'll do it. Because I, at that point, I didn't ca- I thought I didn't care what I did as long as I was successful, as long as I was famous. That seemed to me all that mattered. And so my brother and I drove out there. And I thought, well, we'll, write, we'll do screenplays. It doesn't matter. It does matter. But I thought it didn't matter. And so I um, went out there and spent about nine months there, worked at Roger Corman's Concord film, which is, he's the B-movie king of Hollywood, helped wow, cast Slumber cool. Party Massacre 3. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. That's really cool, man. Yeah, so I did that. I kind of, so it was a, they made 20 slasher movies a year <laughs> and, uh, and made That's a profit on all budget. of them. Yeah, oh, they were very low budget. They had one guy, they had one director who Corman knew, and he had a special job. They'd say, okay, Bob, whatever your name is. Look, we we just shot a movie and we've got a set of a house. Now, we don't have another thing scheduled for another two weeks. Can you make a movie in two weeks on that set? Because we don't want the set sitting idle. And he'd say, yes, he'd go round up some strippers and write a script and shoot something in two weeks. That was his job. Don't forget about the hookers and the blow. (laughs) I don't know about that, but he liked strippers because they were willing to get naked. And that was a big part of these things. You know, it wasn't porn, but there had to be violence and boobs. And so anyway, so I, this wasn't really, I, you know, I wasn't really in my um, element there, (laughs) but I was, it was, it was an interesting view of the entertainment industry. My friend Chris stayed there and has gone to be very successful writer down there, but that, and that's a whole story in and of itself. But then yeah. I'd gone out there and here's the funny story. Now this is true. So my brother and I are going to drive out to LA and I lived in Providence. Jen's in Seattle. Jen's my wife, now wife. And I was like, Hey, I'm going to be on the West coast. Like that. I'm practically neighbors now with Jen. I got to call her and see what's going on. It's a true story. It's like that, like that's much closer than Providence. And so I called her and this is interesting the week before I called her, she had been talking to her friend who 
uh, about dating. She was single and she's 24 and she was already preparing herself for a life of spinsterhood because she thought, I haven't met anybody. Maybe I never will. I'll just have to make deal peace with all that. And she had found a picture of me I'd sent her and it had been buried in some box, but she came across it and she told her friend, she said, you know, if I was to date someone, I would like it to be like this guy, Bill Canauer. Not him, but someone like him. And then a week later, I call and leave a message on her thing and she freaks out. So she had sort of, and, and she had developed a massive star crush on William Hurt and before that. And weirdly, I, for a time, when William Hurt was really big, I bore a bizarre resemblance to him. Like I'd see pictures of him and it would kind of like take my breath. <laughs> I was like, Jesus, I look like, and called people say, Jesus, you look like. And she had created this huge crush on William Hurt. And so anyway, it seemed like she was sort of forming the idea of being with me and we ended up, and so we, I'd go out there and talk to her for, you know, every couple of weeks and we'd write all these letters and eventually I just moved up here to be with her. Enough of Hollywood, enough of Hollywood. And came up here to write novels and got a job at a restaurant. And I said, <laughs> and I got a job at a restaurant and they, they and I, I opened Union Square Grill. It doesn't exist anymore, but we opened it. I was part of the opening team and I'm 25 years old. I really don't want to go back into restaurants, but I need work. And um, they sit us all down because it's a corporation. I never worked for a corporate you know, restaurant. And they said, let me explain to you that what you get after a year, you get such and such benefits. And after three years, you get these benefits. And after five years, you get in my head, I said, I am not going to be anywhere near this place in five years. I was How long were you in there? that place for, what, 18, I you were, you yeah, were 18 years, I think, 17 or 18 years. Really? Well, till 2007. I left in January of 2007, yeah. Yeah, crazy, huh? <laughs> that's, that's awesome. So Jen is uh, a writer as well. She's a writer and an artist. Yeah. Yeah. She wrote a book called Violet Bing and the Grand House, which she illustrated. She's a writer and illustrator, published that with Viking. And she writes an essay for Author Magazine. I'm the editor in chief of Author Magazine. It's an online magazine where I, we have articles on writing. I do video interviews with authors. And Jen does an article and an illustration every month for that magazine now. That's pretty incredible, man. Yeah. So it's a creative household. Well, that's the way, you know, that's the kind of the way it should be, as far as I can tell. Works for me. Works for, works for a lot of folks. You have written how many books at this point? Well, I mean, I wrote, I wrote a lot of books before I published one. Uh, the book you're reading called Fearless Writing, that's my third published book. If you don't include, see, I have a secret double life. If you don't include my Dungeons and Dragons adventures that I've published... I don't know if I do count them, but I've just sold another one. I just published another, or they're putting it together. Two of those, but uh, a novel called One Year in Jeopardy, a collection of uh, essays called Write Within Yourself, an Author's Companion. The book you're reading is called Fearless Writing, right? uh, How to Create Boldly and Write with Confidence. And then I got one coming out in June called Everyone Has What It Takes, A Writer's Guide to the End of Self-Doubt. That's pretty, that's pretty yeah. awesome. And which, and is that with Viking as well? Uh, that's with Penguin. There Penguin, you go. Penguin, yeah. So the Writer's Digest books published Fearless Writing. And then Penguin bought Writer's Digest books. And so I'm now, and they wanted the next one. So I'm now with the, I'm now a Penguin Random House author. Penguin Random House Simon & Schuster. They've bought Simon & Schuster also. So 
They're just gobbling up everything. So what the hell? I'm on board. So as a working stiff, what was your process in your writing? I mean, you, you mean back when I was at, in the restaurants? Yeah. Uh, I was very disciplined about it. I'd get up and I would write first thing in the morning. I still do that. And so I would do that in the morning and, and then I would probably do stuff with the kid. After that, I would put the, get the kids off to, did I do it after? No, I guess I would do that then. And I, then I would get the kids off to school and I would um, run and then I'd write again in the afternoon and I'd go to work. And then, you know, and in fact, when I was work, working lunches, I would write before work. I always had kind of write before work. I can't do it. I don't do as well afterwards. So first thing in the morning, like at 7 a.m. or whatever. Now I'm up, I get up, actually I'm writing by 6.15. That's usually when I start. That's Which by cool. the way, for any of your listeners, if they're interested in writing specifically, that is not unusual. Most writers I know, and I know a lot of them, that's when they get their best work done is first thing in the morning. Not all, but that's often when their mind is clearest. Yeah. Certainly true for me. I am an aspiring author myself. And yes, you're right. That's when I get most of my writing done is first thing yeah. in the morning. Yeah, and when I... And yesterday I didn't, and I tried at five or five o'clock in the evening, and it was just like I'm wasting my time. Man. Now, it's hard. You've got the whole momentum of the day, and it's sort of like you don't realize it, but you're kind of in conversation with everything you've been experiencing. Your mind is filled with the momentum of everything you've been interacting with, and you have to stop. You have to put down all that stuff you've been thinking about and dealing with before you can let in new thoughts. And you can't just turn a switch. Even when I write first thing in the morning, I still have to kind of, I still have to let go anything that's come up since I woke up. And so I, my mind can get still so I can focus on the next thing I want to work on. And uh, so even then where I'm quite, I, I medit actually I meditate first, I get up and then I meditate. Meditation is good, it clears your head. Um, even then I still have to, it takes me a minute to get in the groove, uh, sometimes a while, you know, so. It's a practice. Yeah, it is. So I'm really interested in hearing how you get up in the morning. This is when you were waiting tables, right? So you'd get yeah. up in the morning, you would write, you'd go yeah. to work, then you yeah. I mean, so you'd shift gears, you would change your mental mindset, and then you'd go back and write in between. No, no, no. I would only work. I, I, would, I would write kind of like we did it in shifts. I would write when I was doing the, when I was doing the Dungeons and Dragons work, I would write in the morning. I do my fiction writing in the morning and then I write uh, the stuff for the games in the afternoon and then I go to work and that would be it. And when I was working lunches, I would just write before I go to work. I would get up and write from seven till nine and then I'd eat and go off to work. Um, but it's always first thing in the morning and that's and I continue to do all my writing first thing in the morning. Uh, maybe I think I might switch to when the kids were young and in school and I would get them to school and then I'd go to work and then I'd write you know, but um, yeah, I'd always try and do it as early as I could and then switch gears and go to work. But no, never tried to write when I got home. No way. So were you working dinners as well as a waiter? Eventually, once the kids were born, I did. We needed the money and uh, it just made more sense. But for a while, it was just lunches and I would, I would, you know, pull, I'd get in the morning, right, go to lunch. But then once I switched to dinners, but I still did my writing in the morning when it was, even when I was working dinners or early in the day at least. I can't, it's hard to remember, it was a while ago. But I switched to dinners and that was that.
how did you how did you negotiate your thought process and your headspace in that? Because that's those those are just, those, <laughs> that from from going from super creative and intellectual first thing in the morning to subservient. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, you know, one of the things it's a funny thing looking back. Uh, I actually spent some time working at Wizards of the Coast when I was at the restaurant. I got a job. I helped them out because I was publishing stuff through their magazines. Wizards of the Coast is the company that owns TSR, which is the company that created Dungeons and Dragons. And so it's a big company. It was bought by Hasbro because they make these collectible card games. Anyway, they're they're in Red Renton. Renton. They're down in Renton. Really? Yeah. And they moved out here and I was like, oh, interesting. Cause I'd just been published by them. And so I did, that was the one time, one of the few times I worked in an office. And in retrospect, I realized that's office work is really not for me. I like to be on my feet. And so one of the nice things about going from writing to working in restaurants is it's actually good to be out of your head, be in your body, interacting with people, interacting with the world and like bouncing around. And I, I think I actually liked that as a contrast to the very internal uh, world of writing. And so I think it was okay. You know, one of the reasons I like what I do now is I, I have do things like this where I have my own podcast and I talk to people or I have clients that I work with or I will teach workshops. So I like the interaction with the world. I miss, uh, you know, I need that. I want to get out of my head because the writing is so internal and I need sort of, I remember Ernest Hemingway, Ernest Hemingway writing about like, after you write, you should make love to someone you love or play tennis or, you know, go fishing. But he, but I, I agreed with him, like, go do something with the world, like get out of yourself. So I didn't have a problem with that. My ego, it was tough for me egoically. Uh, I felt like a failure. Uh, the job, I don't, you know, look, I loved a lot of the people I worked with, but um, it was tough for me because that work came to symbolize my lack of success. And that was very tough for me to not sort of hate myself and feel like, uh, you know, as I got older and time clicked on and things weren't happening, I got, I was pretty hard on myself. So that wasn't easy. And waiter symbolized, you know, adult waiter for me symbolizes for, as an artist, a certain kind of failure. I'm not saying that's true, but that's how I felt about it. Did you consider yourself an imposter as well or? No, you know, I, this is the thing though, Brian, I it was very hard for me because I knew I could do it and I knew I was good at it. And I'd had a level of success doing it, whether it was poetry I'd published or giving readings or doing my comedy show, or I, I just knew I could entertain people and be interesting. So I couldn't quite figure out why things weren't happening. Now, in retrospect, it's because I didn't really want to write novels. In retrospect, I'm much happier doing what I do now, which is creative nonfiction, personal essay, memoir, that sort of thing. It's a much better fit. But I, I, I had really made up my mind, like, no, it's novels. Like, it's got to be novels. And it wasn't. So that was one of the reasons why I didn't have the success, because I was trying to sort of fit my size 12 feet into 11 and a half shoes in a way. You know, it really, what, and for creativity, creatively, it's gotta be a perfect fit or a near perfect fit. And it wasn't, you know, I was, I, I wanted to write, but the truth is I didn't really have stories I wanted to tell. The first time I wrote my first blog, my first essay for Author Magazine, it was effortless. Actually, I was just talking, I was just thinking about this. The difference was, with the essays, I had my own internal knowing of what it should be, 
even though I'd never written one, even though I didn't read them, I knew for myself what they were supposed to be. Whereas with the fiction, I always was kind of imitating what I thought a novel should be. Even though, and I was skilled, so I was a good imitation. I came close. I got agents and people tried to, big publishing houses got interested. It always was close, but it never quite worked out. As soon as I wrote those essays in my own voice, uh, philosophical and spiritual, it was natural. I understood it and I didn't, and like I said, I had my own internal knowing of what it was supposed to be. And that's irreplaceable for an artist, no matter what you're doing, music, writing. And that was the difference. And then, and from there, everything that I've done since then has come, has been outgrowth of what I allowed myself to access that first essay. You know, as a performer, an audience is going to know if you're faking it. They're, 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 they're going to understand that you're legitimate. And you have, you, you've run into that, right. into that yes. as an author as well, evidently. Yeah, the, what will happen, I always say to my students, I say, look, if you, if, you, if you have a story you want to tell and you tell it in the most authentic way it's meant to be told, the way you're meant to tell it, it'll be like the perfect glass of lemonade, you know, just the right balance of sweet and tart. But if you bring any self-doubt to it, any, if there's any attempt to please the audience, try to write what you think they want you to say. It'll be as if you put a drop or two of white vinegar in it. No one will see it. No one will smell it, but they'll drink it and they'll go, sure, it looks like lemonade. There's just something off about it. And it'll permeate the whole thing. And that's the way it goes with work. Like you can't, you can get away with some inauthenticity. I think some people, they just are, they power through it, but there's nothing going to replace it of telling the story you want to tell and the way you want to tell it. You have to, to the story you most, most want to tell in the way you most want to tell it and not to think about the audience, not to try to please the audience because you don't actually know what they want. It's the story you most want to tell in the way you most want to tell it. If you let yourself do that, that's the surest, easiest way to success, whatever that may, will mean. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I think your book is so intriguing because that exact point that you're talking about right now is the point that many, many successful musicians make as well. Of course. Live by your own voice. Everybody, it's all artists. It's, it has to be, you have something unique to offer, whatever it is, because everybody's unique. But will you allow yourself to express it in whatever form it takes? Or will you try to say, well, I'm gonna try to shape it to look like something I've seen so that people will find it acceptable. It's, 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 it's self-acceptance 101. Can you do it? Can you accept, can you say, let me see what I value and share it as opposed to try to create something that will show people how valuable I am. Interesting. So the path, you, you were writing, you were waiting yeah. tables, yeah. and then there's, there was a transition where you made the decision, I'm not going to work for the man anymore, I'm done. Well, we, you know, my wife and I came into a little bit of money. And so it was enough for me to like be able to stop working for a little while. And I said, Jen, let's, I got to get out of that restaurant to just see what I want to do. I, I think it's fiction writing, but I, want, I know how to make a living. I want to learn how to make a living doing something I love to do. So uh, we said, all right, well, and she wanted me to kind of find work right away. So I'll try to find some work. And I did find some, but mostly it, what I found was books 
teaching, lecturing, workshops, peace, you know, I, coaching. But I didn't know that when I left. I just knew I wanted to do something. I, I, I was like, look, I'm a middle-aged man. I am not happy. And I want to be happy. I, and I don't even know how to be happy. I don't even, like, I don't emotionally know how to let myself do something I love for a living. I, I, I looked back and realized I hated money. I hated it because it was the thing that kept me in jail, you know, and I had to, and, and things began to change when I started getting paid for something I would happily do for free. I was like, Oh, I like that money, that money <laughs> I like, and I don't care how little it is compared to what I used to make. I would have done that for free. And it took me a while to learn how to say to people, they'd say, will you come talk to our group? And I'd eventually have to teach myself to say, yes, will you pay me to do that? Because sometimes they say yes, and I say no. Now they always say yes. And so it took me a little while to, to let myself do that. But I didn't know how. When I left the restaurant, I said, I got to leave because I know that the 40 hours I'm spending there is consuming more than that many, is, is consuming more energy than just those 40 hours I spend there. I know that I need to find out what will fill the empty space that, where those hours used to be. And I won't know until I leave. Yeah, I just... I, and it's, you know, it's scary uh, in a way, but I just had to find out how, what do I want to really do? What do I most, what is, and I, and I didn't really know. Like I, if you had told me 20 years ago, I'd be doing the kind of stuff I am doing now. I thought you're crazy. Coaching people, you know, teaching fearless writing workshops. Like what the hell is that? I don't want to teach anybody. I love teaching people. I didn't even know that. Uh, but you know, it's funny at the restaurant, one of my big jobs was training people training people to work in the restaurant. Like I'd be the guy to train them. I trained you, I believe, as a matter of fact, right? I, I can't remember that. <laughs> well, it was, yeah, but I, I trained, cause I was working lunches, so I would train everybody and I liked it. And people say, oh, oh, you're really good at training people. Like, yeah, whatever. But it was a kind of teaching that I got and I liked. And so, but I wouldn't have known 20 years ago that this, I it couldn't, I couldn't have pictured it. Here's a funny story, Brian is I, so I leave the restaurant, right? And what happened was I had gotten interested in certain spiritual teaching that I just thought was really cool. And uh, it, it struck me that it was linked to creativity. And I was interested in the relationship between spirituality and creativity. I just thought the two things seemed linked to me. And I just got really interested. I would just think about it all the time. I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And this never happened with my fiction, by the way. I wouldn't get an idea for a novel and just never be able to stop thinking about it. But these ideas, that would form essays and the stuff I do now, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And I would, first I would talk to myself about it because there's no one else who wanted to hear it. Then I'd talk to my <laughs> wife about it. Thank God she's a great, and she's as interested in this stuff as I am. But then, it's a true story. So then after that, my brother is down in LA. He's da he moved down there eventually, but he was just out there visiting. He works for Viacom and so, he, or for TV Land is the network he works for. So he was there doing some kind of business thing. And my best friend, Chris is down there. And so I went down to visit them and I was filled up with this stuff. And every chance I got, I just started talking to them about the relationship between spirituality and creativity. And they were like, huh? And they were kind of interested in listening. They were very generous and they listened to me just blah, 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 right? And so one day at the end of this trip, it was just a couple of days, I'm driving with my friend Chris back to his house through LA and I'm, talking about this and that and God and love, pause. And he says, Bill, you know, you know what you should do? 
you should be one of those guys I see on PBS sometimes who walk around on stage telling everybody about the meaning of life. You should be one of those guys. He's talking about like Wayne Dyer and those kind of people. Yeah. And I was like, you know what, Chris? I said, I should be. Like, I could do that. Now, here's the weird thing. What, I, was a, I was an ex-waiter who had written a ton of books and barely sold. I, no one wanted to hear from me. There wasn't anybody in the world who would want me to go talk to them. I had no experience doing it. I had no business believing I should be able to do it, but I knew I could do that. And I said, I do want to do that. I think I can do that. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but it was so clear and easy to me that that was clearly something, that that was a path that I should follow. And it made perfect sense, even though I had no evidence, there was nothing in my life that said, you can do that. You know, I, I find that really interesting. So I know you're ready for your TED Talk when that comes out. Oh, totally. I went to a TED Talk. I went to a TEDx talk. I got invited to one like in around 2008. And I sat there and said, well, fuck, I should do that. <laughs> I should totally be doing that. And I'd never done anything like that. But what happened, so here's an interesting thing, public speaking. I love the public speaking aspect of it. But I was just going to bring that up. <laughs> What's that? I was just going to bring that up. So what well, happened was, this true story, I... I, um, it's a chapter in my book about my new book about this, where I was like, I was constantly imagining myself talking to crowds constantly. And then I'll say this and I'll say that. And one day I'm going for a walk and I'm imagining myself talking to these crowds. And I was like, Bill, you better figure out how to actually talk to people in a, you know, go give a workshop or something, because you know, there's a difference between pretending to do it and actually doing it. And you got to learn if you actually like to do it. Right. And so I put in my blogs, I was writing my blogs, my daily blogs for author magazine at that time. And I put a little note at the bottom saying, if you like the ideas, I'd be happy to come talk to your organization. And I thought, um, I thought to myself, what will happen is a local writing organization, like a little writers group of five women who all write, will ask me to come to their living room in Seattle and talk to them for 30 minutes. And I'd be happy to do that. That's what I figured would happen. I put that up a week after I put it in my blog, this woman contacts me. She says, oh, yes, yes, we want you to come talk to our organization. I said, well, who are you? She said, well, we're the, East, we're the Eastern Washington chapter of the Society of Children's Book Writers of Illustrator. We're out in Spokane. I'm like, Spokane? Oh, my God. And she said, I said, how many of you are there? She said, there'll be 50 or 60 of us there. I said, how long do you mean to talk for? It's just two hours. And I was like, oh, my God, no. And she said, how much do you? Do you charge? I said, well, for this sort of thing, usually. <laughs> so I, I created a sum. I'd never done this before. I created a, a, a number that was way higher than she would possibly take so that she wouldn't take it. And she says, wow, that's a lot of money. Do you have any examples of you talking? And I actually had given one 10 minute address at one writer's conference that got recorded. Yeah. And I said, well, yes, there is this one talking. And I showed it to you. She's like, oh, we're going to have a bake sale if we have to, but you're coming. So I was like, crap, <laughs> I got to do it, right? Two hours. I don't know what to do for two hours. Now it's no problem. But then I'd done theater, but like, how do I do this? I don't know how to do it. Oh. And so I would like, I created all this, my notes, and I tried practicing it. It'd be a two hour talk. And I created like a, a PowerPoint and I was like, and I, but every time I would do the PowerPoint, I'd practice it. I would do it differently. Like I didn't want to just memorize it. And so I was like, I kept saying, I don't know how to prepare for this. I don't know how to prepare for this. I don't know how to prepare for this. How am I going to do this? And I, a little voice in my head would say, you're going to be fine. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Don't worry. So time comes, I, I show up and, and I'm talking to the woman 
who invited me out. And I tell her some story about the time, I think I told this story about the first time I, I pitched a, a, a book at a writer's conference to an agent. And I told her that story, it was kind of funny. And then the people come in and they're paying money. I'm like, oh, these poor suckers. They don't, <laughs> they don't know what they're, I don't know what they're gonna get. So they're paying all this money. And I get there and I'm like, and I start out um, kind of nervous, trying too hard, speaking too loud and too quickly. My thought being that if I stop talking for one second, they're all just gonna get up and leave, but they didn't. And I remember there was one guy in the middle of the, of the crowd. I mean, this, we're at Gonzaga University and there's a guy with his arms folded. He's wearing a plaid shirt like this. And I'm like, okay, well, I've lost him, but I keep telling a few jokes and, the, and then I see his arms have unfolded and now he's smiling. And then, this is the interesting thing. I, so I'm going along, I'm kind of doing what I prepared sort of. And then I talk, I'm talking about fear and other people. And I thought mm, what I prepared wasn't enough. And then I remembered that story I just told that woman. I said, I'll tell that story. Now, what's interesting, Brian, I may or may not have ever told you that story, but it's a, a story I've told a lot of people before. I told it to people at work. I told my wife. So I told these stories before. So I'll just tell that story. So I start telling it and it's going well. And here are all these people who've come to this university and they paid money and they're listening and they're all sitting there. And all of a sudden it dawned on me. I had been preparing for this my whole life. Yeah. All the stories I told, all the failure, all, this, all the striving. I stood there saying, I just have to tell them stories. I already know how to do that. I've been telling people stories my whole life. And now they're paying me to do it? That's success? How disappointing. How disappointingly <laughs> easy. How, how, how natural. It was profound. And I loved it. I loved the experience because it blended inspiration, theater, storytelling, teaching, and I do miss it. That's the one thing about the, the pandemic, even though I'm gonna be doing another workshop in February and I'll be doing lots of workshops virtually. I don't get to do the live in person ones. I do miss that. It'll come back. It will, it will. That's an amazing story about preparation. And I totally agree with you. I, we are preparing for whatever's coming down the street. And it, we don't know what it is. We don't know what it is. But, no. you know, uh, what is it? Fortune is when opportunity and, and preparedness meet. Yeah. And it's 95, yeah. it's 90, 95% preparedness. Yeah. Although you don't even know what you're like. I, I keep thinking I know what I'm preparing for, but I've kind of given up on that because I, I, what I try to do is see what wants to be done what is most interesting to me right now? So, you know, I've got a new book I'm working on and that looks like the one that wants my attention now. I don't know where it's gonna go and I don't know what it'll be in the end, but not to worry about that. Just focus on what is interesting and compelling right now and what is most immediate. And then the details in the future will figure themselves out. So you, uh, you cross the bridge. Yeah. This, this is first event that you did, the first lecture yeah. you gave, speaking engagement. Then what happened after that? When did you when did you start getting more speaking gigs? It just well, it just I sort of pieced it together. Um, I published a little book, that collection of of essays called "Write Within Yourself." That opened up. There's a lot of writing workshops or work or conferences around, especially in the Northwest. We're lousy with writers up here, and so I would teach at writers conferences. I got involved with the Pacific Northwest Writers Association. They're the ones who fund Author Magazine that I'm the editor of, and. So I would teach through them. I would do my own workshops. 
So I would just put it together wherever I could. You know, I would do some at like East West Bookstore here in, in Seattle. Um, so like a lot of writers, I just do it where there are teaching opportunities. And the more I've, and the more stuff I've published, and the more I sort of gotten known, the more I'm asked. So now I teach at the Writers Digest Conference in New York and the writers, and there one down in LA. And I did, that was the keynote speaker at the San Diego Writers Conference. And I did the Alaska Writers Conference. And so it's mostly through that, but now I'm starting to build up enough of a following that I can do some of my own without having to involve other writing organizations uh, to sort of promote it and bring people in. My goal, you know, my goal, there's a, I, I love public speaking and, um, I do think that'll be more and more a part of what I do in the future, I assume. And the more books you sell, the, the more that stuff sort of comes to you. I don't mind going out and doing it myself, but I prefer when people come to me and say, will you come talk to our you know, group or whatever. And that happens more now than it did when I was a young fella. So you have you have your podcast and you have your blog. Uh, a little bit of history on author to author. Yeah, so I have a, I have a magazine called Author Magazine, which is an online magazine where there's essays that other people I published. I have a blog or like a column. It used to be five days a week. I don't do five days a week anymore. I do two days a week where I write an essay. And then a few, and so I would have video. So I, I I do video interviews with authors every month. On for Author Magazine, they're up on YouTube, but they're also run through the through the magazine. They used to be three camera shoots, you know, but now I do them through Zoom, and that still looks that's pretty good. Actually, the Zoom's not bad. And um, bad. It's, I, I, I'm not overly impressed with it still, but yeah, it's it is what it is, you know. It, but I've learned how to edit them in a way that it looks okay, you know. But it's okay, it's okay. Um, but I, at least the Zoom has allowed me to interview some people I wouldn't have otherwise because yeah, they're absolutely. you know wherever. Um, I, and then I started a podcast back before I was even, I've never listened to podcasts. I had no idea what they were. I called them internet radio. Uh, this was years ago. I started author to author cause I wanted to have more conversations with people cause my interviews were really just first I was off camera. I was just really all in the author. And then I eventually got myself on camera, but it's still, it's about them. You know, it's about the person, but I wanted a podcast where it could be a little bit more of a conversation. And so author two, the number two author, that's been going for, I don't even know. I can't remember when I started it. 2010, maybe something like that. Well, maybe a little later. I've done a lot of those. I do one a week, every Tuesday, yeah. usually most almost every Tuesday live. Um, yeah, I love it. And so I just talk about whatever, uh, whatever the author, you know, whatever I actually, whatever I want to, frankly, that's, okay. that's, the, yeah. that's the subject. I try to keep myself interested and that usually works. Okay, good, good, good. 
I, w- I do want to talk about fearless writing a little bit. Yeah. Uh, um, what was the motivation for writing that book? Well, it was, I, I was teaching it essentially. It, be- oh. it was a lot of different things. I, I, one of the things I used to do when I was public speaking was I set up this thing at uh, East West Books here in Seattle where I would do the author's round table where people could show up and for 10 bucks, just talk to me for two hours. And people would show up and I would just sort of give them advice. And so I started teaching, I wanted to teach people about confidence. I had a class called Craft and Confidence where I would talk about uh, the, where you find confidence and how, it, how you develop it. And so I started doing, I've been doing enough teaching around this sort of emotional challenges of writing that I felt there was, and then I met this agent at this writers conference and told her what I was doing. And she was like, I think there's a book in that, you know? And so my first idea was simply to write down the classes essentially. But I didn't like that. And so I, I, I approached it differently. I said, I wanted to discover, I want to, I want to write about it in a way that I teach myself something about fearless writing. And like <clears throat> a lot of these kinds of books I've learned, you start with a central thesis, which for fearless writing is you don't have to care what anybody thinks about your stuff. That for artists, the, 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 the worst question you can ask yourself is I wonder what other people will think of this. That, <laughs> and, and that, but that thought, I wonder what other people think of it is very compelling because you won't have a career unless somebody likes it. Like somebody's gotta like it. And yet when you're writing, you can't actually be thinking about what other people like. You can only be thinking about the story you're trying to tell, the song you're trying to write, et cetera. And so the dis, so the, the foundational was, look, you don't have to worry about what people think of your stuff, but I know you do. So I'm gonna, we're gonna break this down and look at all the different ways in which I know you think you need to worry about it. And I'm gonna help reframe those experiences so you can keep your attention where it needs to be, which is on the story you want to tell. You don't have to care what anybody thinks about your stuff. You don't have to care. The, the, and, and, but it's just so magnetic, the idea that what other people think of your work is actually more important than what you think of your work, but it's not. And so that's where it came from. And we sold it pretty easily, actually, uh, to Writer's Digest books. And they were really excited about it. And it did, you know, it did well. It did really well. It's probably um, still doing well, isn't it? It's still doing all right. I mean, things, things have, a, have a kind of... A, art to them, but it's still doing all right. And I suspect when the next one comes out, it'll probably bump it up again. Yeah. So you talk a lot about flow and how yeah, baby. That being state. in the flow. Yeah, yeah. The flow state. Talk about the flow. I think flow that's state. important to a lot of us in, who are. Yeah. Artists. So the, the flow state is really being in the creative mindset where and anyone who's ever, well, the flow state, is available anytime, anywhere, but artists sort of have to enter it in order to do their creative work. Um, when you're in the flow state, um, there are a couple, you, you recognize you're in it when you begin to lose track of time. That's the first thing that goes, you stop paying attention to time. When you're in the flow state, you're more aware of the thoughts you're thinking or the world you're creating, the song you're writing, than the chair you're sitting in and what's going on outside the window. When you're in the flow state, things come to you. You don't go to them. You are surprised by the work you're creating, even though you're doing it all on your own. And um, when you're in the flow state, you, um, 
you don't worry about good and bad. It's just what belongs in the story you're writing or what doesn't. There really is no good and bad. There is no right and wrong. It's just what belongs and what doesn't. And when you're in the flow state, you are never wondering what other people think of your stuff. You're just wondering what comes next, what comes next, what comes next. When you're in the flow state, you feel wholly a part of something for which you are not wholly responsible. You're wholly a part of something. So you are entering into something. You don't create it, but you enter it. You allow it to happen. And it's where writing happens. It's where creativity happens. It's challenging because the experience of being in the flow seems to contradict so much about reality where time does supposedly, and there is right and wrong, and there is good and bad. Um, and what people think of you seems to matter quite a bit. And so it is there is a kind of level of faith you have to have to enter into it, to trust that something will come to you, that you just open up and let it come and it will come to you. That your job is just to get into the frame of mind and let it happen, not to go grab an ax and start chopping wood as an artist. Does that make sense? It does. I find a lot of a lot of rehearsal though is chopping wood. Well, there, I mean, music. So music's interesting because you've got it. There is the sort of training your body to do this thing, right? And I understand that. I play music too, not as seriously as you do, but I do like to play music, and and I that is true. But even there, what I'm trying to do with the training is get to the point where I can forget about my body and get into the flow with the music. Right? Yeah. That if I can train it well enough, you know, and there is some, and the thing with writing, which is different than all other art forms, is that everybody learns how to, because it is a form of talking, essentially, mm -hmm. and everybody already knows how to talk, but not everybody knows what an F major chord is, and not everybody knows how to play the drum. You already come equipped with some tools, whereas not everybody comes equipped with tools to play music or to act or whatever. So, um, but even with writing, there is, you learn a certain amount of craft so you can stop thinking about the craft so much. But you wanna, even with all the music, you wanna get into a state where it's just coming through you. And even with writing music, you for sure wanna get into the flow. Well, you know you about that, you, you, you're a composer. I am, and I'm always looking for the inspired melody, the idea that comes to me, um, as opposed to me just manufacturing a song, you know, with the correct chord progression or whatever. So the flow state, it's a kind of mysterious uh, in that it's not something you can control, but you can control, you can focus your mind in a way to enter it on purpose as opposed to just accidentally. Yeah, so you talk about uh, becoming a friend with discomfort. Is that part of the flow state as well? Yeah, well, in truth, no, because I mean, not really in that because in, in the flow, you're not uncomfortable, okay. but you have to, I will say this, when you're writing, 
you will have two experiences. You will have listeners of finding the right word, the right sentence, the right story, the right thing for you. And then there is the discomfort of when you're trying to force an idea, force us for musical terms. It's like if you're wanting to play chromatically or play, you know, harmonically, you say, well, that, you know, I'm in the key of C that, you know, F sharp is going to sound off or maybe like an A flat is going to sound off if you're just playing the key of C, right? Right. It's going to sound forced maybe. Um, it's not quite because you can modulate, but, you know, the, the but for, but for writing, the only way to know if you're telling the story you want to tell and the way you want to tell it is the effortlessness that there's no forcing required to put that word, the right word for you for that sentence in. And there is the experience of the effort when you kind of come up with an idea and you sort of try to pursue it, but there's resistance. And that's you forcing an idea that doesn't want to go in. So with writing, there's always going to be the discomfort of A, uh, that will come as you try, as you are testing ideas out and you feel the effortlessness, the ease and the discomfort of the idea you, that, that isn't the right idea. You can't freak out when you feel that resistance. You have to know it for what it is. The resistance of an idea coming that isn't a part of your story is just like the feeling of imbalance the gymnast feels as she is trying to cross the balance beam. The imbalance is telling her attention is to the right or the left and isn't where it's supposed to be. Well, when you're writing, if you're criticizing yourself, you'll feel uncomfortable. You have to know what that means. It's not that you're a bad writer, it's that you're criticizing yourself and your guidance system is saying, don't think that way. Or if you're trying to write a story in a way that isn't meant to be right, you'll feel the resistance, you'll feel that, and you don't like that resistance. No one likes the resistance. You want effortlessness, but the resistance is the information saying, not this way. Don't punish yourself, don't criticize yourself, just don't go that way. So you have to do have to make a friend of that kind of Discomfort, and then there's the discomfort, uh, which I think you're quoting this this suspense writer. She said, "Being comfortable with uncomfortable, being uncomfortable." And in the uncomfortable, she means not knowing the future. In my next book is all going to be about uncertainty, and, with the, and to be a creative person, to be an artist, you have to get comfortable with uncertainty. You are you have to accept it as a companion all the time because right. But and it's true for everybody. But when you write, this is the truth. Is this is something I learned? This is how I was able to write these these little essays. Is I learned no matter what I thought the essay was gonna be about. And sometimes they're only four or 500 words long, they're short. I wouldn't really know what they were about until I started writing. I'd sit down and that blank page would tell me what that thing was really about. I had to give up my idea of knowing what even the next hour held in store for me. I don't know, I don't know. And you have to get comfortable with not knowing that the not knowing is the portal to creativity, is the portal to the new thought portal to inspiration. But so much of adult life is about thinking you need to know, thinking you need to survive, to not die, get up every day to have some certainty so you know how to make money so you don't croak or go broke or whatever your idea of failure or death is. And so you have to get comfortable with all the uncertainty as not just normal to life, but actually the source of your creativity, that not knowing. The page is blank for a reason. The key, the, the, the page of the, the, the staff is blank to begin with for a reason, because anything can go there. And that's the source of your creativity. Wow. That's- Yeah, baby. I love that. Yeah. So uh, don't you talk about the novelty of nuance? How does that interplay with all that? The novelty of nuance? Do I? Talk to me about that. What do you mean by that? Uh, well, it, uh, I, as I, you were writing about, and we just talked about, about feeling good is the right answer every time. Yes. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But that's a hard one. A lot of people are taught, like, you got to work hard. Life's not supposed to be easy. Uh, You know, you got to suffer, suck it up. You know, this is, there's a whole kind of like, and as the ex-athlete, I understood that too. Like there's a lot of physical strain and, and sort of discomfort in getting stronger as an athlete, you know, but for writing and creativity and life, frankly, the right answer is it feels good. You know, you're going to marry someone that doesn't feel good to be with. That's the wrong answer. You're going to do it, right. You're going to, are you going to try and write a story? You don't. And here's the thing. This is, this is the thing why, why fiction writing was such an interesting lesson for me. It was really close to being the right fit. Um, it was really close. There was a lot about it that was a good fit, but it was still like a pair of shoes. I have a whole piece about it in my next book because I had this pair of shoes like that. They are fine at first, but I, by about mile two or three, it's like every freaking step. And that's what happened with me in the fiction. It was a pretty good fit. But after 15 years, it was starting to become agony. I was straining against the thing that wasn't a perfect fit. And you have to say, if it isn't fun, we're doing it wrong. If it isn't fun, we're doing it wrong. If, it's not, if I'm not having fun, I'm doing it wrong. Excitement is my clue. Engagement is my clue. And that is the right answer for everything. You will do everything well that you like doing. You, are, you will do everything well that, and you will have success at what you have fun doing if you'll let yourself do the thing that actually delights you, pleases you, excites you, stimulates you. That's the right answer. Not, well, how much money can I make? Well, what would my father think about it? Whatever, right? It's, it's you're enjoying it. That's how you know. It's a tough one. It's a tough one. A lot of, it's, I just think a lot of adults are not trained to think that way. We, we beat it out of them in childhood with like, well, just do the homework, even though you're not interested. Go to school and take all these classes that you would never spend any time doing on your own, but do it. Train yourself. And you know what my curse was, Brian? I was good at being good at things, which meant it didn't matter whether I liked it or not. I could learn to be good at it, which sounds great, except it's a recipe for mediocre unhappiness. You know, and I've known people who've had success because they couldn't do anything but one thing. You know, oh, yeah. my wife was kind of like, if she if she wasn't interested, she couldn't do it. I could do anything. And that doesn't actually work because all that does is is having an okay experience, but being good at it is a low bar. It wasn't until I found the thing that excited me that I couldn't stop thinking about. That's when I found success. Yeah, very, very cool. As far as writing techniques, I don't know if you, I haven't finished the book yet, but I, I ran across. I don't get much into the craft of writing in it. I got to admit. I, I, so I was, I was just going to show off my literary prowess here. <laughs> uh, I've, uh, I, oh, you I, were. I, I read briefly about the Hemingway technique where he says, don't use a word. If not using it creates even more meaning. Does that, do you even find that applicable? Do you find that boring? Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Oh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you wanna, I mean, every word should belong. Every word should increase the value of the sentence. I, I you know, if I, I, here's the thing, I don't teach craft a lot, but I love it and I'm a devotee of it. And I do teach personal essay and memoir writing and I teach the craft of that because there's certain approaches one takes to that. And um, yes, and so if I had to give a quick, you know, rule for like the craft of writing would be do it in a, sh- you always want to use as few as words as, as possible. That doesn't mean every single sentence is tiny or that, you know, every book is small. You might write long, luscious 
sentences, but every word should belong and be necessary in it. Every sentence should be necessary. Absolutely. Absolutely. Nothing extraneous. Where does Bill Canauer see himself in the next 10 years? Hey, man, I'm not going to tell you about 10 years from now. All I can tell you is I got a book coming out in June. I'm really excited about it. I love this book. It's my favorite thing I've ever read, written. <laughs> Maybe I've read also, but written. And um, I got another book I'm interested in, and I've started working on that. Um, my goal is to just get out of my own way more and more and more. Just let it happen more and more and more. Trust more and more. Um, you know, there's the old term, let go and let God. You familiar with that? Sure. It's true. And I think I understand it more now than I ever did. And just, just focus on what I'm interested in and let the details figure themselves out. The more I let that happen, the more I let stuff come to me, the better things go. So I'm not thinking 10 years from now. I'm thinking tomorrow. There you <laughs> I, go. Try, I try to have that be the farthest I think. Just be, or even really, let me be interested right now. Let me be interested in right now. And, uh, you know, part of how I did my work was when we were at the restaurant, there was a coworker we had named Tim, Tim Searson, good guy. And he was going through kind of an interesting time. He was trying to transition out of that restaurant too, to start his little yeah. business, you know, it was not, maybe not so little. And I sort of started coaching him. I fell into it with him because he was struggling to, he was mentally trying to deal with the starting his own business. And I got interested in sort of helping him like coach, just giving him a certain pep talk from time to time. And uh, it seemed to really help him. And I, what I, by doing that, I allowed myself to practice doing what I wanted to do, even in a circumstance that would seem to not allow it being a waiter in a restaurant. You can't, well, I found one person who was interested in hearing what I had to say and I was interested in where I had to go to do it. So in that, by paying attention, I found an opportunity to pursue what I wanted, even in a circumstance that looked like there was no opportunities. So pay attention, pay attention to the moment, wherever you are and get interested in that. This, that will point you to opportunities. They always exist in the present moment. So this, the whole, this whole podcast has been a, a, a series of, of, of advice from you in, in, in a lot of ways, what yeah. would you, what would you want some young person or any person for that matter? It doesn't even matter the age. What would you want to tell them on top of what you've already spoken of? Your, your genius. So intelligence is curiosity. Your intelligence is your curiosity. It's not your brain. It's not how good you are at chess. Your intelligence is your curiosity. Your genius is your curiosity that you've indulged. Indulge your curiosity. Here's the thing. Writers, the difference between the professional writer and the amateur writer is the professional writer knows their curiosity matters. All they have to know. All Shakespeare knew is he was interested. All Stephen King knows is he was interested. That's reason enough to pursue something. The inexperienced writer thinks, well, so what that I'm interested in? How will I know that will lead to success? You don't. You don't know that now. Now I know if I get interested in something, it'll probably turn into a book. Now I know that. I didn't know that back then when I started out. But it was always the case. 
What interests you most? Don't worry about where it's going. Just follow it. Your curiosity is your guide is your genius. Follow it. It's there with you. It, by the way, you can't get rid of it if you wanted to. You can take <laughs> drugs and you can drink yourself into oblivion, but it ain't going away. You can try and talk yourself out of it, but it's not going away. It can't. You don't get to choose what you're curious about. It chooses you. Follow it. Follow it. It'll lead you where you want to go. That's that's some, that's some great advice, man. In fact, you're inspiring me for my second book. Thank you, Bill. <laughs> hey, man, it's good seeing you, Brian. I got to tell you, congratulations something. on the podcast. Keep doing it. Yeah, I got I got to tell you something, man. This has been pure joy just sitting here talking to you about this. Ah, uh, well, thank you. I thoroughly enjoyed myself. You're a great host. Well, I, I appreciate from an experienced podcaster. I I really really appreciate that. That's awesome. Thank you, sir. Hey, man. You know, you are more than welcome to come back anytime. The if the well, inter- perhaps. Hey, I'll tell you what. I'll come back. I'll come back with my books out in June. How's that? Perfect. That's going to be great. I really okay, like so June 1st. June 1st, it comes out. I'll come, I, we can do one in June. Awesome. Is there any way that I can get a pre-release so I can at least brush up on it? And I will, if I, I will get my, I'll see how many copies they give me and, I'll, and perhaps I will send you, I will get, actually, I probably will have a copy. So yeah, I can probably get you an arc. Oh man. That was that, how, how considerate of you. That is absolutely incredible. Remind well, me, okay? Oh, I'm going to get busy and excited. Well, I'll, I'll be, I'll, trust me, I'll be in touch. <laughs> hey, man, I really, right, really appreciate this. All right, Brian. Oh, my pleasure. I had a lot of fun. Yeah. Hey, right. shoot me a note when it goes up, okay? I'll, t- I mean, I'll share it with oh, my piece. I, I, actually, yeah, you mostly definitely get that. I'll actually p- post it on your Facebook page and, and all of it. I can't wait. Yeah. I'll be in touch with you on that. Okay, Brian. All right. Again, all right, take it easy, buddy. Have fun. You too. Thank you. Hey, you want more mac and cheese? Mac and cheese music.blog on YouTube at Brian at Mac and Cheese, Instagram and Twitter, www.macandcheese.com. And thank you, Anchor.fm, for hosting this podcast. Take it away, Bruno. Do not listen to Mac and Cheese Music Podcast if you're operating heavy equipment and are pregnant or plan on becoming pregnant. Side effects may include vomiting, diarrhea, cramping, depression, insomnia, and overeating. (laughs) 